Hi, this is Brian Dolan with the law firm Pepper Hamilton. Pepper partner Greg Novak regularly hosts a webinar for West Legal Edge Center focusing on what are the latest developments in the investment management world. This month, Mr. Novak was joined by Alex Massioli, managing partner at North Street, and Evan Katz, managing director at Crawford Ventures, for a discussion of best practices for raising investment dollars for your private fund and investment management business. They also reviewed recent developments affecting private placements, business brokers, Jobs Act placements, and other capital raising strategies. You can find the PowerPoint slides used during this webinar by visiting Pepper's Insight Center at www.pepperlaw.com, where this podcast is posted. Thank you. This is Greg Novak. I'm a partner in Pepper Hamilton's Financial Services Group. Uh, we have offices up and down the East Coast and in California and, and uh, Detroit, Michigan. And um, we're a national law firm and have been very involved in the investment management space for many years. Um, I'm joined today by two very good friends and colleagues, uh, Evan Katz from Crawford Ventures and Alex Massioli from North Street Capital. Evan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, Greg, and uh, good morning or good afternoon to everyone. Uh, my name is Evan Katz. I'm a partner in Crawford Ventures. I've been in the hedge fund industry for about a dozen years, and my specialty is fundraising for hedge funds and private equity funds, uh, investors typically being endowments, foundations, fund of funds and family offices. I'm also a recovering lawyer as well, and I'm on the board of the Hedge Fund Association. If you're in the hedge fund business, take a look at the HFA if you're not already a member. Alex. So my name is Alex Mazzioli. I'm the uh, Chief Executive Officer of uh, North Street Global. Uh, We're a leading fund administrator, both private equity, real estate, and hedge fund uh, based here in New York. Uh, We're the only administrator with a capital introduction group. Um, and as well as I'm the chairman of the Cap Intro East and West Conferences, which are two large multi-day conferences held in New York and San Francisco each year. Well, thank you very much for joining me, both of you. Today our topic is best practices in raising capital. And, of course, <clears throat> when you're dealing with the fund industry, you have to start with rules because uh, we are uh, creatures of the tax rules, the securities laws, the corporate laws, as well as practical considerations. So let's quickly review what our rules are applicable in the private placement context. It starts with Section 4 of the Securities Act of 1933, and in particular certain exemptions under Section 4. used to be called 4.2, but the Dodd-Frank Act uh, put in the A in order to make it more consistent with the nomenclature that you see in most of the federal statutes these days. Under Section 4, there's a safe harbor and it specifically states in the regulation that it is just a safe harbor, and that is Regulation D. Generally, there are two ways to comply with Regulation D in the fund context. One is the friends and family, um, which we'll explain in a moment, and the other is the Jobs Act relaxation approach. In order to be able to trigger Reg D, you have to file Form D with the SEC. You may also need to file with states under various blue sky rules. There are myriad self-executing exemptions for institutions and de minimis situations with the states, and they're all different. Don't assume that your law firm is going to handle Blue Sky if you haven't specifically discussed it. Lawyers should mention that if you're going to offer these securities, you have to make sure to tell the lawyer in which state you are going to offer the securities. In only... Two instances do you need to pre-register 
before you offer securities. One is New York and the other is California. Now, there are people who take the position that if I file Form D, I have a federally covered security and therefore New York's attempt to impose the Martin Act on those securities is inapposite. New York, however, takes a different view. The Martin Act is a Depression-era rule that deals with the regulation and registration of the issuer, not the piece of paper, the security, and so it coexists with Reg D. Now, the very important point here is if you don't file Reg D, you don't even have the argument that you have a federally superseded covered security. So if you're in New York and if you're going to try to raise capital, your best bet is to file the Form D and file your New York Form 99. As I've often said to uh, clients, it never makes sense to pick a fight with an opponent that has an unlimited budget, an unlimited time horizon, and no governor. So let that thing sink in for a moment. And when you consider that the cost of, of compliance in this instance by filing a form is relatively inexpensive, it becomes a form of cheap insurance in order to make sure that going forward your offering is subject to the anti-fraud rules, of course, but not to some niggling uh, compliance rule because you wanted to save a few dollars. So blue sky is very important. Whatever you do, don't ignore it. You need to, with uh, in each case that you raise capital, make sure that the states in which you are raising capital either has an exemption or if it doesn't have an exemption that you've complied within the period of time that's specified. Note that it's um, in most funds, the manager wants to take a performance fee or a performance allocation, a share of the profits. And even though under certain instances you can have um, on a Reg D offering, the so-called friends and family side of the house, um, you can have a number of unaccredited investors. If you are taking a performance fee or performance allocation, then the Advisors Act is going to push you into they need to be qualified clients or super accredited. Um, that is uh, going to make the ability to squeeze under the accredited rules uh, somewhat limited. In 2013, the JOBS Act gave us a special exception to Reg D and Form D, and this is what I've called a general solicitation within the context of a private placement, a classic congressional oxymoron if there ever was one. How can you have a general solicitation in the context of a private placement? If you read Section 3C1 or 3C7 under the 40 Act, the exceptions uh, specifically require that there is no general solicitation. So if you're going to have a fund that's exempt from registration as an investment company, then there can't be general solicitation, right? Well, no, because the JOBS Act trumps for all purposes of the federal securities laws, as long as you comply with the requirements of the JOBS Act, you can do advertising. You can have an open website. You can do virtually anything you want to trumpet the information about your fund to the world. But there's a price, and that price is you must have and retain evidence that all investors are, in fact, accredited. 
You cannot rely on a mere representation of an investor. And please note that uh, just because you know that the investors are qualified purchasers or qualified clients, that does not trump the accredited investor verification requirement. You still, if you're going to do an open website and you're going to have general solicitation, you still need to confirm the accredited status of the investors. Moreover, if you're doing a 3C1 general solicitation, the 100 investor limit still applies. So, uptake has been slow. The SEC's own statistics show that a lot of funds are not taking advantage of the general solicitation requirement. I'm going to open it up to my colleagues. What are your thoughts on that? Alex, why has uptake been slow? I think one point has to do uh, with the exposure of just being responsible for keeping the documents um, and supporting the accredited status uh, with each of the investors. Do um, not... you think investors just don't want to tell you or, or show you their tax returns or whatever it is? I think sometimes, gonna... yes. Absolutely. Do you think it's because they're being dishonest? or is it Not always necessarily dishonest, um, but I think there's, you know, there's just a heavy burden on uh, the fundraiser to make sure that there's concrete, verifiable information with each one. Yeah, but we're talking about the first two pages of the last two years' tax returns, and you block out all of the Social Security numbers. I mean, for the most part, that seems to be a fairly low bar to reach. I, I think so. You can ask our president on that currently, but um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think everybody everybody is inclined to turn over certain information of theirs. Um, I think sophisticated investors uh, that do this on a day-in, day-out basis, I don't think you'll have problems with. Um, I think an accredited investor who's maybe um, uh, sparsely active uh, might have some reservations in that. Yeah, Greg. Uh, yeah, let me just chime in a little bit, uh, Evan speaking. When the Jobs Act first came out, it got a lot of publicity. I, in fact, spoke on a panel about it, and a lot of folks thought this was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Everyone would be signing up for it. But you're right. It's been the complete opposite. Uh, a couple of points about the Jobs Act. First, most hedge funds are obviously not going to advertise. You know, The notion of a hedge fund going on the Super Bowl and putting a big ad uh, is probably not going to happen. Uh, but what this does allow under the Jobs Act is – it enables fund managers who go to, say, a family office conference to talk about their fund. In public. If, in public. And if you've done great for the last 45 years, you can tell people, we've done great for the last 45 years. And that's the sort of thing where right now, you being a lawyer, every hedge fund partner and marketer has this big leash on them, and their lawyer says, you can't talk about your fund and how well you've done at an open mic conference. And that's where the Jobs Act really comes in. And you would think a lot of people would want to do it so they could talk at a conference about that. When this came out, I actually thought there would be a, a, a third-point green light and Bridgewater ad fighting for Super Bowl commercials. But we've, <laughs> not, we've not seen any of that, and that was obviously a missed mark. There are a few egos in this industry who might actually do it just for, just for that reason. You're, you're absolutely right. More likely than not, though, it's going to not be Super Bowl ads. It might very well be um, the local AAA baseball team, you know, putting your name out on the outfield because the, the lift isn't quite as expensive. Or you might see people wanting to put ads in trade journals, right, which is the, the other way that this often comes about, or pension and investment age, because they're trying to make, you Yeah, know, people thought it would be as prevalent as, say, ETF ads on CNBC. Right. Um, and it just didn't turn out that way. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think, and the, the question is, why not? Uh, I guess two points. First, people are 
creatures of habit. We've always done it this way. And what I hear from a lot of managers and lawyers as to why they haven't done the Jobs Act is, frankly, we don't want to be the first ones to test it. I've heard that from many people. We don't want to be the first ones. I've also heard things like, well, the SEC, which they've sort of said publicly, didn't really want the Jobs Act. They were kind of dragged into it by Congress forcing them to. Uh, so I've added it. Who's the boss here? Well, that's the Congress, exactly. And I've asked people at the SEC specifically, will you, be, will you be applying more scrutiny to a Jobs Act offering than a non-Jobs Act offering and still trying to get a, a straight answer out of them? Well, let's put this in context, though. I mean, the, the primary benefit of doing a, an accredited investor verification is it does help you with your suitability analysis. If someone later says, well... Uh, you know, this was this was not a suitable investment for you. You, as the manager, can say, "Well, wait a minute. You know, our system is designed to allow me, the manager, to rely on the fact that you have the wherewithal to withstand a loss, and that line is drawn at accredited investor. I verified your status, so before you start saying this was unsuitable for me, let's make sure you weren't lying when you gave me your data, right? So that's." That's sort of something that people miss, that having that verification is actually kind of a tick the box. I've just done something that perhaps other people haven't done. I've confirmed that this is, you know, this person has the minimum requirements necessary in order to be able to invest in something that might be considered risky. And without a doubt, it's, you know, check as many of those boxes as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, if things don't turn out the way you would hope they're planned, you're going to be very happy that you did. So, so I think that's the, the first thing, you know, you, you're, you're uh, uh, supplementing your suitability analysis and making sure that the investors uh, are comfortable or that you're comfortable with them. But I think the other thing that it does is if you consider what you have to do if you don't do these general specifications and tick the box on Form D for Section 506C, you know, the slide that says friends and family – these are the things you can't do. You can't do a general solicitation. You can't do mass emails. You, there's no publicity at all. You can't have an open website, although you may have one for the advisor, provided it's registered with the SEC or a state and is therefore holding out. You can't be in league tables. You can't, uh, you know, have a freebie if you use a registered broker-dealer because they're subject to the same rules that you are. It's not like just because you use the broker, they can do a general solicitation. If you're not you haven't ticked the box and confirmed everybody's accredited status, then using the broker doesn't help you. And Greg, I don't know if lawyers can ever give a quick answer, but let me ask you a question. Uh, you mentioned league tables. Some of the platforms that some of the wirehouses and other hedge fund industry people have where investors can go look up funds and see their performance, if, if some of those funds are not Jobs Act and probably 99% are not Jobs Act, if you're one of those funds that's not a Jobs Act fund, can you give those numbers to those wirehouses and to those hedge fund companies that put your numbers up? I'm going to give you a uh, principle of double effect answer, okay? This is from Moral Theology. Before the Jobs Act, the way this was done was you'd have a parallel domestic and a parallel offshore fund. Not a master feeder, but two parallel funds. Before AIFMD, the offshore fund was generally solicited because there were no limitations on the use of that fund. Because they're parallel funds, you can say with some degree of certainty that the performance is the same. 
And so the numbers that were then reported to the league tables were the numbers for the offshore parallel fund for which there is no limitation because you're not soliciting in the U.S. That's the way this was done. And in general, the, the regulators said, well, as long as it's a foreign directed offering without any attempts to raise money in the U.S. for the offshore fund, it was accepted. So again, there's no, there's no change to that paradigm. And if you haven't done a, um, a um, Jobs Act offering, the domestic fund still cannot advertise. So if you as the manager voluntarily submit your information to a league table, which is now going to be generally dispersed, you can't do indirectly what you can do directly. And the effect of that is you've now done a general solicitation. So many funds fall into this trap. I call them footfalls because, they, oh, well, everybody does it. Well, everybody does it doesn't wash with the SEC, and it shouldn't. So that means we're always backing and filling, and the easiest way to fix the problem is to do the Jobs Act offer because that way you eliminate the risk. So, Greg, let me ask you, you form countless funds. If you could have shared the percentage, that's great, but why are most of your funds not doing the Jobs Act? Uh, well, there's definitely a prejudice in the industry that uh, it's burdensome, and a lot of ma uh, managers do not want to have the burden of confirming the accredited status of their investors. They just don't want to deal with that, and they don't want to hold the paperwork. Now, I know, Alex, you guys have started to pioneer doing this in the, the non-fund context. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, a couple of the ways that um, that one-off project placements and non-fund placements uh, where the um, advisor or the GP has been more or less exiting that exposure risk is by hiring us as an administrator just for that one-off project where, as a hire, we are taking on the exposure of validating the accredited investor status, maintaining the records for each one, um, logging and registering communications with each individual investor as well. So it's been a way for them to basically outsource the exposure. So, and you're doing that for non-funds, or are you also doing it for funds? We, we do it for funds as well. I, I think, you know, for, for funds, it's almost become, for funds, it's more of a regular status where the administrator acts as a transfer agency of sorts, uh, creates, does the AML compliance, KYC compliance, and sort of validates on uh, a regular basis. That's, that's almost becoming mainstream now. I think it's the one-off deals where, you know, we're the administrator for a hospital out west or we're the administrator for a hotel in Florida. Um, and they range from million-dollar deals all the way up to $100 million deals. But for, for the company or the uh, partners to uh, basically offshoot that exposure off themselves where that's not part of their business, but they know they check the box and, and have it covered, that's where we've been coming into play. So you're seeing uh, much greater acceptance in the non-fund context to the Jobs Act offerings. Absolutely. Yeah. And, again, truth be told, Congress never envisioned that the Jobs Act was going to be used by funds. At least that wasn't the primary purpose. It was, it was to jumpstart small businesses to raise capital in a way that was consistent with their, you know, private status. Yep. And 
wow, who knew, who knew that an intended result is actually being
if you do some of these. One things. of the only businesses where being the first move, uh, mover isn't always the best thing. Yeah, and Greg, to, to your point, as you said a million times, we've known each other a long time. Hopefully, the relationship goes well. Yeah. Hopefully, every single hedge fund makes a fortune. Every hedge fund is in the top decile. Everybody makes money in life is great, but we all know it's not the case. And so, as you said many times, when, if and when, and it will happen, in some hedge fund or some private fund somewhere, some investor loses some money, especially a lot, they're going to go to their friendly lawyer who is going to do a post-mortem and look through every single item on their checklist, which is your checklist, about the Martin Act, about Reg D, about registered reps, and we'll get to that later, uh, about the Jobs Act, and see if they can find anything that they can drive a truck through and have either a very strong claim to get a rescission or at least enough of a claim that they're going to get a settlement out of the manager. So I think your point is well taken. You know, these things which are maybe a little pesky but not insurmountable, it's the best insurance it's the best insurance you can buy. Right. And, you know, as I get older in life, buying insurance seems to be a very important thing for various risks. <laughs> and I use put the word insurance in quotes and italics because there's, you find insurance, whether it's a legal opinion or whether it's – Many using, different forms. Exactly, using a licensed person as opposed to someone who's – one other thing with the jobs I mentioned too, it depends on your audience. You know, to Alex's point, permanent capital is becoming much more important to funds. We'll get to that later about budgets and marketing and building a business. But it should certainly be borne in mind that for most hedge funds, if not initially, eventually, their audience is going to be the institutional investors, the endowments, the foundations, the fund of funds. And you know, I speak with CIOs and heads of pensions all the time, and I've actually asked them, has anyone ever asked you for written confirmation of whatever form for a Jobs Act offering. And, you know, picture this. This is basically asking the head of a $150 billion pension fund, has anyone asked you if you're an accredited investor or not? And everyone has simply laughed and said no because there are very few Jobs Act offerings. But I guess at some point someone will ask in Harvard University or, or CalSTRS or someone, can you please send over whatever the latest document is to show that you have more than a couple of million dollars in the bank, and that will just be part of how it works. Well, it, the easy answer to that is – the Form 990 is generally public records. Publicly yeah. available, and that has a balance sheet, and it would show the assets. So if it's, exactly. you know, if it's a pension plan, maybe not. If it's a state pension plan, it's a political subdivision. Well, no, that stuff is all filed. So remember, one of the ways you can verify status is through publicly available data. So if you have uh, all of your investors are high net worth individuals who work Fortune 500 companies. Internet is allowed. Yes. Validation. You could just pull the 10Ks that see what their compensation is for the last two years, and as long as it's higher than the minimum, they're an accredited investor. And every foundation and endowment publicly reports on their website or otherwise. So it's, yep. Exactly. So you can use that data. You just want to make sure that you preserve it in a file that's not going to get blown up the next time you have a malware attack on your computer. Um, a quick point about the difference between the sale of a service versus the sale of a security. I know that sounds like it might be trite, but you'd be surprised how often people confuse the two. Um, when a manager is selling an interest in the fund the manager manages, that's the sale of a security. Pure and simple, uh, the investment pool into which you will buy is offering its securities, the manager is acting as effectively a third-party marketer of that particular fund. Um, with exceptions under the issuer's exception, et cetera. On the other hand, if the manager says to his um, internal people, go out and find me separately managed accounts to manage. Find me, you know, big, chunky 10, 15, 20, 100 million dollar assignments where I'm not putting it in the fund and I'll run it parapassu with my fund, 
That's the sale of a service. That's an advisory service. That's governed by the Advisors Act. It's not governed by Reg D. You might have a Reg D in the fund, but if you don't have an SEC registration or a, an effective state registration, you will not be able to sell or solicit for those services in a public way. You can't hang out a shingle. That's called holding out. And if you're holding out, you have to be licensed. Some of the, popular, the popularity of uh, SMAs on the rise um, to kind of parallel the commingled pools, we see a lot of the smaller uh, sub-$100 million funds registering with the state as an advisor just so that they close out that gray area. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that, again, a cheap form of insurance. You get the state registration in place. Which is relatively easy to do depending on the state. <laughs> but you're right. It's relatively easy to do. And then once you have the state registration in place, uh, you can hang out the shingle. The fact that you happen to be licensed in Kansas doesn't change the fact that you are licensed and you can hold yourself out in New Jersey. Now, if you get clients from New Jersey, you may actually have to register, register in New Jersey, and that's why if you look at Form ADV, there are all these boxes for state registrations. But it's an after-the-fact, right? Once you have the license, you then have clients. Once you get the clients, then you license. Well, on the other hand, just to which we get to further down the road, if you're a FINRA-regulated broker-dealer, you actually have to before the fact. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so, Greg, the lesson here, I think, is that when funds get started, they keep thinking about a fund. They ask their lawyer what to do about a fund. They go to someone like you. They get great advice. Hopefully, they follow it. But then when their marketing folks find somebody who wants to do an SMA, is the lesson here you better make sure you go back to your friendly lawyer because there's a whole different regime if you do an SMA and if you forget to do it, you could trip through all sorts of stuff? Well, that's right. Well, let's say that you're, you're one of those lucky managers who has $110 million in his fund, right? And you're still humming along under the private fund advisor's exemption under 203M of the Advisors Act. Okay, which means you don't have to be registered with the SEC. You're registered with the state, um, and you're under the private fund exemptions because you're solely managing private funds. Well, you get that SMA in the door, and whammo, you've just shifted. An advisor. You've become a registered advisor because you've now blown your solely private funds exemption, and you have to make sure that it's a lot easier to toggle from state to federal on Form ADV than hurry up and... You know, the client is saying, hey, I want to send you this money. When are you going to take it? Oh, I can't take it right now. I've got to get my registration in. They're going to go elsewhere. Exactly. That's why it's better to be prepared because when that opportunity does come, you may lose it just on time to get. Correct. Exactly. If I recall correctly, the SMA, even if it's for $1, will it's still private funded. Correct. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, Alex, you mentioned uh, registered broker-dealers, and it, we have a slide here using unlicensed finders, and I have taken the liberty of putting the word no with a big exclamation point. The first time in the history a lawyer's ever given a one-word answer to any question that's ever been asked. Yeah. But the reality is unlicensed finders are the proverbial dynamite, um, or actually nitroglycerin is a better example. It's unstable. You don't know whether or not it's going to blow up in your face at any given point in time. Um, can you have a person who is a finder and pay them a finder's fee? Categorically, yes. However, the problem is in the definition of what is a finder, right? 
And there is a famous no-action letter, the Paul Anka no-action letter. It's old and hoary. It's been around a long time, and it's absolutely despised by the SEC because they believe that everybody who's involved in the sale of a security who receives transaction-based compensation with respect to that sale should be licensed as a registered representative of a broker-dealer. And so if you are um, engaging in the sale of a security and you are getting transaction-based compensation, if you don't want to be licensed, you very well better know Paul Anka backwards and forwards and all 17 elements of it and live each one. The, the letter, not the person, Paul Anka. Yes, that's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and live the elements. I mean, the, the SEC has on numerous occasions informally stated if Paul Anka's fact pattern were presented today, the answer would not have been the same. Yeah, and just, just to actually show that I actually did go to law school, just a little bit about Paul Anka. In that case, you had a famous singer, Paul Anka, who said to the SEC, I'm a singer, this is what I do, I'm going to introduce these parties, I'm going to get a commission, I'm not going to be at the meetings, I'm not going to send the documents, I've never done it before. And I'm never going to do it again. never going to do it again, uh, one time only. And, and to Greg's point, whether Paul Anka is still good law or not, that's one thing. But the problem we've seen in the industry is mission creep. The person says they're just going to make an introduction, then they end up at the meetings, they end up sending the documents. They end up, up advocating on behalf of the sale. They just become outright selling it. Correct. And they've done it before. And the other point is, too, if, you, if you're looking for professionals, all the professionals are licensed. So from a business standpoint, the person, the guy or gal who really does know the endowments, the pensions, the foundations, and the fund of funds, he or she is going to be licensed. So, I mean, your neighbor may know somebody, but why take the risk? when the real people who know a thousand investors, not just one, are all going to be licensed anyway. But if you do it, read, like you said, read Paul Anka and follow every word. Yeah, it's okay if somebody, you know, if your neighbor introduces you to his cousin who has a lot of money and that person decides to invest, you just can't pay him. Well, of course. Yeah. That kind of introduction is fine. But I guarantee you, your neighbor's going to want to be paid something, right? <laughs> now, steak dinner, probably okay. But you go more than that, maybe have two or three bottles of wine, you're probably over the yeah, edge. <laughs> but uh, why is this so important? And it's so important because of one word, rescission. Evan alluded to it earlier where he said that, you know, if something goes wrong, what's the first thing that an investor says? I, I want, want my money back. back. Right. Not tell me what it's worth today and I'll take my lumps and I'll take the net number. No, they say, I want my money back. And so they go to their friendly neighborhood plaintiff's attorney, and if that plaintiff's attorney is astute or has listened to our webinar today, they'll know that the first thing you do is you say, who was involved in this sale? Tell me their names. So you get the names of the people from the the uh, manager, you get the intermediaries, if there were any. And then that person takes those names and goes to the publicly available broker check and says, oh, Mr. Smith, not licensed. Mr. Jones, not licensed. So tell me exactly how this pitch went down. Oh, Smith was pounding the table telling me I had a buy. And Jones was there with the PowerPoints and doing all the explanation. And afterwards, I felt, wow, these guys really understand what I want and I bought. Very familiar fact pattern. End result, two unlicensed people receiving transaction-based compensation outside of the Paul Anka no-action letter. And what happens? They go to the company and say, give me my money back. 
and the company says, well, that was investment capital. It's already been invested. It's deployed in illiquid securities. This is a private equity fund, or it's deployed in a hedge fund strategy, but you know what? We lost the money. Legitimate loss, however, doesn't mean that the investor is not entitled to a rescission. And in 99 out of 100 cases, the manager is going to try to settle in order to contain the damage. Well, and this has become a hot topic as of the last uh, you know year or so with PE firms. Um, and uh, you know PE firms have here and there taken their own transactional fees on their own portfolio companies, whether it's arranging financing in a debt or equity form. But now the SEC has come in and said, "Listen, whoa, you know XYZ firm, you cannot act as a broker dealer by taking a transactional fee on your own portfolio company." Now, you know, a lot of portfolio, uh, private equity managers will take umbrage at that and say, "Wait a minute, I'm taking it as a deduction against my management fee, or I'm not going to take my carry in exchange for the fee payment up front." While it sounds like a good justification, when you do the math, you see that it's actually very, very disadvantageous to the manager. Yeah. I mean, to the uh, to the, uh, to the portfolio company and the investor. Yeah. Right. Because most of these portfolio companies are valued based on a multiple of EBITDA, and if you take an expense out of that company, you've just reduced EBITDA, and so therefore the value in the portfolio is reduced. I think it also I think it also leads down a bad road of conflict of interest. Well, so, you know, I mean, your jo your job fiduciary, you know, is to the LP in the end, okay, as well as portfolio company to build up value for your LPs. But I think uh, you know you may get into that gray area where you say, wow, the money from this transaction may not be the best and proper transaction, but the money there is good, and I think I'm going to try to take it. I mean, Alex is absolutely right. I mean, there's whether there's an actual conflict or the perception of a conflict, there, there's a reason why most institutional investors are not thrilled with PE managers getting fees for putting deals together. So if you can avoid the appearance of impropriety uh, and maybe increase your management fee a little bit to make everybody whole, at least everybody's interests are aligned and there, there's not this broker-dealer there's not this broker-dealer issue as well. And now let's be really careful here, there's a difference between a placement fee and an investment banking fee, right? And a lot of people don't understand the distinction. An investment banking fee is when I am structuring the deal, giving valuation advice, suggesting how to attack the marketplace in order to improve the value of the firm as much. What you would need a Series 79 for as a registered broker-dealer. Placement agent, on the other hand, that is where you're actually taking the already formed transaction and documentation and finding third parties. Selling the security. Selling the security on an agency basis. So, and for that, you need an 82 or a Series 7, right? Or you could do a 7 with a 79 as well. But, you know, the, the important point is that there is an affirmative defense on the payment of fees to someone who may have spent a year putting a deal together, and at the end, the company says, I'm not paying you. Why? Well, because you're not a licensed person, but I did all this work. Then they go to their lawyer and say, oh, let's try unjust enrichment. Let's try quantum merit. Let's try whatever. No, all those remedies fail because the courts say you have unclean hands, and you can't ask a court of equity to give you an equitable remedy 
when I have unclean hands. And then there's always this thing called aider and a better liability, which means that if you're a facilitator of this transaction and the payment of fee to an unlicensed person... You pay the fee. If you pay the fee, right. It's like hiding the criminal in your house. I mean, you become just as in the wrong as they are. So let's turn the page and talk about broker-dealers themselves. A broker-dealer must be licensed with the FCC and a member of FINRA or potentially a member of an exchange or some other self-regulatory organization. But these days, there's really only one. That's FINRA. The license of the person, the actual natural person who is doing the work must be active. In other words, using the industry parlance, the license has to be you forward with a licensed broker-dealer. Just having passed the test and having the license, if you're not you forward with a broker-dealer, the FINRA treats you as if you are an unlicensed person. Your license is inactive when you are between brokers. And if you're inactive, you cannot be paid transaction-based compensation except in the very narrow circumstance in Regulatory Notice 15-07. And that's where somebody is retired, where they died and you're paying their estate. Well, some other very narrow circumstances for this inurenium period of time between being registered with Broker A and registered Broker B. I think that the notion is when you make the pitch, when you're selling the securities, taking the documents and making, going to investors with the offering, you have to be registered then because that's when the investor protections apply. You're out there when you retire, if you die, that's, it's a trailer income. You're, right. not, you're not pitching securities then. Exactly. And that's exactly. the explanation. Also, in the few circumstances where a person is in between broker-dealers as a matter of course of business, such as, you know, leaving a firm to another firm and the transaction is still alive, you know, there's those instances where uh, transactional fees have been paid into trust until the U4 is completed into the new firm. That has to be negotiated and worked out between the two firms. Mm-hmm. There are protocols in place. Every broker-dealer has them on how to do that in order to make sure that no one is receiving a fee if they're not licensed. I mean, that is a huge issue. Which gets to the last point on this slide. All fees must be paid to the licensed brokerage firm, not the individual. And everybody says, well, why is that such a big deal? Well, because if you pay the individual directly, it's evidence of what's called selling away. And why is selling away a huge violation? It is because it means that you've done something outside of the purview of the licensed broker-dealer. And let's say you engage in a transaction that results in a big loss. That broker-dealer is all, all of a sudden going to have to take the loss, and if it's big enough, it might blow through their net capital, which means they're out of business because they have a net capital violation. That's why the broker-dealer is supposed to be supervising you in order to make sure you as the licensed person are doing the right thing. And the best way to make sure that somebody is attentive is you dangle the dollars. And as long as the brokerage knows they are being paid a fee to supervise the registered rep's activities, the whole system works. But if a rep can be paid outside of the brokerage for securities-related activities, then it's outside the supervision, and the regulator, FINRA, goes absolutely bonkers. Um, we've heard questions, or I've heard a lot of questions about, well, wait a minute, what if I have an internal wholesaler who's not selling advisory services, be careful, who's actually out there selling interest in 
a fund that's managed by the manager. That person needs to comply with either the issuer's exemption, which is a 34 Act Rule 3A4-1, or cannot be paid a commission or bonus tied to raising capital, or must be you forward with a broker-dealer. And all sales commissions must be paid to that broker-dealer who will then split them with the representative. Now, there is sort of a thing, a concept of the compensating balance here. If the representative is normally making $200,000 a year and he has $100,000 of commissions that are paid through the brokerage firm, well then his compensation is 100 from the brokerage firm and 100 from you know, his other services. So you have to be very careful and these arrangements need to be designed and laid out before, not after the fact. But the other thing that a lot of organizations run afoul of is this notion that somewhere in my family tree I've got a broker-dealer and therefore I can quote unquote rent that status or get electricity because it's somewhere in my family tree. No, it doesn't work that way. Just because you have a broker in the family tree means that the transaction has to run through the broker subject to its supervision and control. That means the fees, again, for the brokerage services have to be paid to the broker, and the broker then disseminates those fees in accordance with its procedures. Um, a broker-dealer license is not rentable. Anybody who suggests it or uses the word turn around and walk out of the office door because they really are asking you to do something which is not appropriate. And just, you know, and to your point earlier in the conversation where uh, the back-channeling, um, even at the bulge brackets, the even at the bulge bracket banks, you'll see, you go on broker check, you'll see Jamie Dimon, who will have a uh, Series 7. You'll see the head of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. The reason being is they don't ever want to be questioned for the back of their investment banking group making money and their comp being tied to some sort of dealer security action. Correct. Absolutely. And, and plus, if you think about it, if you're in a large brokerage firm or investment banking firm and you're at the top, you're top of governance, if you don't have the license, how can you expect the people who work for you to do what's right? Well, they may have been a bond seller 20, 40 years ago, but you're right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're going to quickly go through the next two slides, the uh, registered funds and the platforms, because we do want to get to the uh, discussion of the uh, importance of the fundraiser because we have particular insights that Evan and, and Alex can bring there. In the registered fund space, remember you have closed-end funds and open-end funds. Closed-end fund sales are through licensed brokers. The 40 Act requires a licensed underwriter. Commissions have to be fully disclosed and there's no disguised advisory fees. In open-end funds where you have trails, so-called 12B1 distribution fees, they're strictly limited. They have to be disclosed. Disguised 12B1s will be discovered if by nobody else, the you know myriad no-load fund clubs that are out there that look for this stuff and then expose the managers to you know illegitimate fees. But note that the manager can use its legitimate profits and resources from other sources to pay for distribution-related services so long as it's disclosed and passes what's called the Gartenberg test, which means it's in the best interest of the fund not necessarily the advisor, and it's not a disguised advisory fee. Uh, flipping the page to platforms, you know, we hear a lot of people talk about, oh, I'm going to set up a platform, which generally is a website with some degree of functionality. 
A platform is no different than a bulletin board, which is no different than a general solicitation. So if you're putting your assets or interest in a, a company on a quote-unquote platform, you need to find out what's the exception. If those assets are doing a Jobs Act offering in a private placement, then, yeah, they could be on the platform, uh, as long as they're original issuance. But if we're doing a secondary transfer of shares, now we're talking about a 34 Act issue, and you have to worry about whether or not you have turned the entity into a publicly traded partnership under the tax rules, and you have to make sure that you're not essentially operating a matching service. So while all of these issues can be overcome, the one that is very difficult to overcome is the fact that the security on the platform is not a registered security. So if it is a secondary trade of that security, you got to find an exception. And the one that we most usually rely on came to us by way of the Surface Transportation Act two years ago, and that was the um, the embodiment of the judge-made rule for one and a half, which is now in Section 4A7 and 4D under the Securities Act, which allows for a secondary market transfer provided there is certain information available. The list is long, but if you're going to do it, you have to make sure that you dot that I and cross that T. So let's talk about the importance of your fundraiser. Evan, you've been doing this for a long time. What's the number one rule that you live by as a third-party fundraiser? Well, I think the couple of thoughts briefly. First thing is that when you're trying to build a business, whether it's a pizzeria or a car repair shop or a hedge fund or a private equity fund, have a budget to grow the business, and that includes a budget for fundraising. So when you're opening up a fund, hedge or private equity, you've got portfolio managers, you've got analysts, you've got risk people, you're hiring lawyers, and so forth. Make sure you get a good fundraiser, internal or external. If it's internal, hire the best person. If it's external, make sure you know what you're getting. And is the person going to devote part of their time, all their time, some of their time? Make sure you know what you're getting. And make sure you get a fundraiser whose experience is appropriate for your fund. Well, hold on a second. I mean, I'm going to hire a third-party marketer, uh, and I'm going to pay them when they actually raise money. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that when it works. The challenging thing can be that a lot of third-party marketers have a lot more clients than they do third-party marketers. So it's kind of like the cap intro situation at the prime brokers. They may have 20 people working at cap intro, but they may have 2,000 hedge funds there. So if you're going to hire a third-party marketer, number one, know how many clients they've got versus how many third-party marketers they've got. And if it's purely, uh, as they say, on the come, a contingent fee, you have to avoid some of the self-selection bias, meaning that the best fundraisers often will get retainers and not a pure contingency. And so typically, uh, if it's purely on the come, if it's purely on the back end, you may have a self-selection problem that the ones you're getting are the least qualified and because they'll take it and just sort of throw spaghetti against the wall and see that and try to see if it sticks. So I probably get, I don't know, 20 or 30 um, 506 solicitations a week, maybe more. You know, people saying, hey, take a look at my fund, blah, blah, blah. I actually save them in an email file because, um, you yeah. know, it's kind of an interesting study as to who is and is not doing general solicitations. But a lot of these people have no idea who I am. They have no idea what my appetite for risk is. And 
they haven't even done the fundamental thing to determine if perhaps my firm is somehow involved in the transaction. Obviously, I can't invest in somebody if, you know, we have uh, a, a conflict. Matching the correct fundraiser with your fund. Sure. A, a couple of things. First, if you're a $100 million or $50 million fund, go with a fundraiser who's raised money for 50 or $100 million funds before. If you're a small startup fund and you hire a third-party marketing firm or you hire a fundraiser who only knows CalPERS and Harvard, whose minimum checks are $250 million and they can't be more than 10% of your fund, and we've seen this happen countless times, you're probably not going to get very far. Yes, there are some huge investors who have emerging manager programs, but if you're a $50 million structured credit fund, hire a fundraiser who's raised money for small structured credit funds before because they'll know the right investors to speak with and they'll also understand the product and your strategy. Granted, everyone does it differently, but one thing that investors hate is when they ask 10 questions to the marketer and the marketer can't answer at least nine of them because they don't understand the strategy and they don't understand the product very well. So get one who knows your strategy and is appropriate for your size. So, so assume the internal fundraiser and the external third-party marketer have ticked all the appropriate boxes. They have the licenses, whatever is necessary or the internal person is not being paid transaction-based compensation. What are the pros and cons of an internal versus an external marketer? Well, I think they're sort of complementary, and the more the merrier. And here's how we've done it over the years. This has by far and away worked out the best for all concerned. I mean, there should be an internal marketer where he or she is eating, breathing, and living your fund and their fund 24-7, knows the team, knows the strategy inside and out, and they, they're going to be approaching several hundred of their best investor relationships who they've known for five or 15 years and speaking about your fund. On top of that, nothing wrong with cap intro because it's a big world and nobody knows everybody. You know, so work with a cap intro team with your PB or your administrator. They will have relationships that you don't, and, again, it's the more the merrier. With a third-party marketing thing, I think works the best is unless they're going to be dedicated to you full-time, sort of the complete outsourced marketing solution, is to go with them for very specific things. For example, there are third-party marketing firms that know every family office in Switzerland. I know a bunch. I do not know every, third, uh, every family office in Switzerland. There are third-party marketers who know every pension in Japan and Korea. I know a bunch. I don't know every one. So the notion is have your internal person working on it 24-7 and supplement him or her with targeted third-party marketing and whoever your cap intro team knows real well who you don't. And, and also to that point, I think in, in situations where the fund isn't doesn't have that type of infrastructure to support an internal uh, marketer, uh, a good selection of a third-party marketer is almost like your auditor, administrator, or PB. You're outsourcing that internal marketer, uh, whether it's in the beginning or long term. So, what's a good budget? What should people be putting aside, for ter you know, in terms of hiring a person internally or hiring a third party? Sure. I mean, that, that's a three-beer conversation. It depends who you ask. But uh, it's more than zero. I'll put it that way. It's more than zero. So if you're going to go with a great third-party marketing firm, one thing you want to know is who they're dedicating to your fund. Is it a slice of one person, or is it actually somebody who's going to put in some significant hours? Because your internal person is going to be working this full-time, and if there's blips or issues, he or she is going to push forward. You know, one of the problems with third-party marketing firms and cap intro as well is that unless you're getting a dedicated person who's really going to be working it, if you have a blip or an issue or a bad month or a bad quarter or your assets are, quote, only $50 million, uh, the large third-party marketers are going to spend most of their time on the big funds who need the help the least but where they can raise the most money. So, you know, it's a candid conversation to have with folks. 
And that's why it's, it's a good conversation to have to know how much of a third-party market you're getting and what, what percentage of their time. All right. So in our remaining five minutes, um, we have two slides at the end called Fundraiser Best Practices and Tricks of the Trade. So, Evan, rapid fire. What should we do here? What are the tricks of the trade that we need to be aware of? Okay. Well, the first bullet point says a lot. Uh, work with marketers who know what their investors are looking for. So, for example, one thing that we do is we're constantly talking with the pension CIOs and their staff. So when a fund comes to us and says, gee, do you think uh, institutional investors will be interested in this type of a fund with this type of return and this type of vol at this stage of their situation, they say, can you call up your investors and find out? We already know. Unless there's something totally unique and very unusual, we already know. So get investors who are constantly speaking with their investor base, maybe even ask to see their call logs, ask to see their database, because the ones that truly know hundreds or thousands of investors will be happy to show you their call logs, their database, and you can see they're constantly in touch with these people. They really are in touch with them, and they know what's going on in the investor world. That's one, that's one point, definitely. So, but you're also suggesting that do a deep dive into um, the uh, analysts at the investor firm to understand what their specific focus is and knowing that certain offerings should be directed to certain analysts. Yeah, our appetite changes quarter over quarter. I mean, Evan was speaking to earlier how he already knows, how his firm already knows. That's because they're having those constant conversations of what the shifting allocation appetites are with each one. Yeah, absolutely. Unless you're talking to a small family office or a small endowment, if you're speaking to a large endowment or pension, they're going to have 15 to 30 people on their investment team, and they're the folks that do hedge, and they're folks who do private equity. And then subdivided under that in the larger shops are the folks that do long short, the folks that do quant and other strategies. So, you know, hire a marketer and a marketing firm that, to your point, Greg, really knows the generals, the lieutenants, the corporals, and exactly whom to call for a specific type of deal in a specific type of strategy. And one thing, and it's on one of the slides, I think, that I cannot overemphasize as a great marketing point, be nice to the secretaries and the administrative assistants who work in these places. Uh, they can be some of your best sources of information. They're extremely nice people. They're there to sort of be the first line of defense, to find great investments and great teams for the foundation or the endowment or the fund of funds. And a lot of marketers and a lot of fund managers may have slightly big egos, and they oftentimes give them short shrift, but they can be one of your best sources of information for what people are looking for. And when you want to get the analyst or the PM to read your documents when they've got a stack of 1,000 on their desk, yes, I already know them, and they take my calls, and they'll read my docs, but these people can get sometimes put them on the top of the heap and get you meetings and get things scheduled. And so be very nice to the administrative assistant. They very can help true. you a lot. Okay, turning the page, very basic thing. Put in the email subject line the name of the person to whom you're writing. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is sort of email marketing 101. You, know, you can have the standard bulk email, dear investor or dear prospective investor, but when people get hundreds or thousands of these emails, put your name in the email line, put the person to whom you're writing. Studies have shown that if I send an email to Greg from Evan regarding in the subject line, there's a lot greater chance you just simply won't miss it when your email's still filled with stuff. And in the bot, so the, the subject matter of the email gets the investor to open the email in the first place. It's from Evan or from someone else that they know. He or she's always shown me good stuff before. I should open the email. And then in the body of the email, give some data to get them to open up the attachment. I mean, like Greg, uh, like you, I get pitched 
constantly to invest in this or invest in that. And I can't tell you how many managers, hedge fund or private equity, let's say hedge, send their monthly email out saying, see attached update. People are getting hundreds or thousands of these things. They're on iPhones. They're in subways. Or just getting over it. Exactly. It's like the Tinder of hedge funds. If you've got the world's best 45-year top decimal track record and you've been up whatever the last couple of months, put it in the body of your email. Yes, don't, don't go on for 20 paragraphs because I've seen that as well. So somewhere between C attached and 20 paragraphs, which uh, if you know the expression TLDR, too long, don't read, somewhere between the two, use the subject to get them to open the email, have the email to get them open up the attachment. And just one personal note on email, please don't reply using a, an email from before that has a different subject that's unrelated to what you're using. You know, um, uh, you'll... Is that because I just did that thing? <laughs> <laughs> no, you'll see emails that say about the investigation. And I'm like, what is that? You know? <laughs> Why did you tell me something that was coming on? But in any event, thank you for your attention, and um, we will all talk to you soon. This is Greg Novak signing off. Have a great day.